industry under pressure. Innovation in its finest hour. This is the Oil & Gas Technology Podcast, where sharp minds reveal the brilliance and sheer determination turning great ideas into new realities. Hear about how it happens in real life with your host, Michael O'Sullivan. The views of the host are expressly his own and should not be construed as the views of any other corporation, consortium, governing body, or interplanetary federation. That, speeches yeah. podcast panels i mean my guess yeah. is a couple thousand of them do you do you ever do panel moderation or are you always just the panel i have moderated a couple times um so it's, yeah i have but it's not normally yeah the, i I've, my thing i've done know. a lot of, i've moderated a lot of panels in the last few years um the last couple of years and i hadn't really ever done it before it's kind of fun yeah. i kind of like it I, it's fun you, like you can make it fun and um um because what i would do is i would always so you always, you know, with, you, t- you have a panel and um, you, everybody always wants to prepare. Like I did a panel for the Rockwell Automation Fair last year. Okay. And, you know, they have all this prep sessions and everything. By the way, we're just going to keep this. I'm going to call this like we're rolling. Okay. Welcome to the Oil and Gas Tech Show. This is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I am, uh, we're back here at our uh, constantly evolving uh, and still relatively new. Still has, it's not, comp- it's not in totally new. But it has, it still has that new studio smell, I think. And uh, um, well, it's it, the orange robot. The orange does. robot, yeah. which uh, is it functioning? Let's see. Um, I got it working. Oh, let's see. He's broken now. Let's see. Dude, your sponsor's gonna kill you for that. You can't like say, "Hey, does this <laughs> really cool robot work?" Oh, crap! You gotta come on, man. Anyway, I'm here with Ryan Sitton, who um, is that, am I saying that right? Or yeah, sitting like what you sitting on? Like you're right, like yeah. sitting on the dock of the bay. That's it. Um, so um, only heard that a couple thousand times. Uh, it too. A <laughs> couple thousand times. Um, and we're gonna talk about a bunch of stuff. Uh, I just decided to do kind of a. Uh, a cold open on this, this one. soft intro. Yeah. Um, but we were talking about, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, moderating panels. Yeah. So the Rockwell Automation Fair last year. And, um, you know, everybody loves to over-prepare for everything. I, I feel like it's over-preparing. We were talking about this a little bit before. Um, I need to move my chair because this thing's not where it needs to be. Um, people like to over-prepare. Um, and uh, I, I think it's the corporate... The, the corporate uh, uh, DNA or something. And we had like, I don't know how many. In oil and gas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can actually tell you where that comes from if you want to get in it. Because it actually comes from oil and gas specifically. Okay, so hold that thought. I will. So we, um, um, so we had, I don't know how many prep sessions with the panelists. And, you know, everything's kind of all, and I hate for everything to be all planned out. So I always, so I learned this trick to help make panels interesting is you always have some things that you don't tell the panelists that you're going to ask them. Okay. Right. So, and, and, uh, and, and it's, and when you hit them, so everybody goes through all the preparations, they have all their notes and everything like this, right? And then you hit them with something that you never talked about in any of the prep sessions. And then that's where the conversation gets interesting. And then everybody gets off their script yes. and, and, you know, you have a good time. Fortunately, we don't have a script. So right. where does that come from? That over-preparedness? Well, um, Rex Tillerson, former CEO. Part of him, Exxon, yeah. Also was, former Secretary of State. Yes. Was, uh, if I'm, you're right. I was thinking about when he was CEO at Exxon. He was giving a speech one time. And he, he was saying, he's giving, this is a public speech, and he says, uh, maybe it's even more like a, a, a roundtable discussion, but 
someone asked him about being in the oil business. And he says, and he kind of smiles. You know, Rex uh, went to the second best university in yeah. Texas, the University of Texas, not right. Texas A&M. Not. And, uh, and he was saying, I think he's a civil engineer, if I remember. Your haircut gives you away, by the way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Rex and I have the same haircut, so yeah. that, that, will, that will put us on the same plane for the But he says, people think we're in the oil business. So we're not in the oil business. We're in the risk management business. Right. And he goes on to say something. I'm going to not quote this just right, but he says, the reason that we hire a lot of engineers is not because we're in the oil business. It's because we need analytical thinkers. If you're going to be in the risk management business, right. you have to be able to quantitatively analyze risk around every decision. He goes on a little bit, and he, he once again, not trying to quote him yet, but his, the, the, the sort of line of, of, of thinking he's sharing is that we, we over time, have understood risk in very different ways. And now I will I will get off of Rex's talk. I thought that point was really interesting. He made this point about being in the yeah, risk yeah. management business, not oil and gas. Now, in our business at Pinnacle, we have we, we do tons of risk analysis. Cause we, we look at the risk specifically of operations and mechanical failure. Yeah, yeah. But what is interesting is doing that, we take, take a, a pressure vessel in a refinery, for example. I could say if this pressure vessel springs a leak, well, it, it could require you to go out and patch it or, or do some, uh, some repair work. Could actually shut your business down for a little while, refinery down for a yep, couple yep. of days, all of which you can quantify fairly easily. However, if you talk to the folks at a refining company, Yes, they worry about that. Yes, that's a negative impact on their business, but that is not what keeps their executives up at night. Yeah. What keeps their executive ups, executives up at night, and I know this because I had these executives say this to me, is the big event. Right. The event where you have a big fire, yeah, some yeah. school district next door has kids who are coughing, stuff's on television. I actually had a, a, a chief operating officer at a major U.S. oil and gas company tell me one time, it, it is negative profits will not put will not get the CEO of an oil and gas company fired. Um, only the big PR massive events are what will get a CEO yeah, yeah. fired. Yeah, and yeah. so when you think about that amount of risk and you try to calculate that amount of risk, what you find is that amount of risk tells you to be hyper conservative in every single thing you do. Right, Getting right. back to the overscripting. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. You're, okay, I'm going to let this person go on and do this show with Michael O'Sullivan. They say, well, here's exactly the answers you can give. Because if you screw one up yeah, yeah. and it's thrown on you know, MSNBC tomorrow, our stock price could go down. And so people are so risk averse yeah, yeah. in basic operations. It permeates every single thing that oil and gas people do. Yeah, we it, no, that that's right. Um, in fact, uh, I've had people. Um, I, th I think it was. I think it was ExxonMobil. It was one of the one of the big ones, where uh, people. I, I guess they actually. For, once you get to a certain level, and you might be invited to speak or do something in public, like there's training classes, right? Oh yeah. Uh, about like how what you can say, what you can't say, how how to, and all that. So, and we talk about this actually on the show. This comes up a lot, um, which is. Uh, uh, kind of to the same point that you're making, the, the oil and gas industry gets a lot of criticism historically for being slow and old-fashioned and risk-averse and slow to make decisions mm -hmm. and all of this. But there's, it's hard to appreciate it if you're not, if you're from outside the industry. It's hard to appreciate why that's all necessary, yeah. right? The amounts of you know, and, and, and once you get past all the dangerous stuff where people get hurt and things like that. The 
I mean, you're talking about huge capital risk that, um, you know, I don't know, maybe CEO is not going to get fired, but, um, but the PR stuff, the, yeah. And the amount of money, if you make the wrong decision, if you make a wrong portfolio decision, that's not, that's not like, oh, well, we'll better luck next time. Right. I mean, the, the amount, the, the financial, the amount of capital and, and the further you get into the life cycle, right. As you go from you're in exploration and then you're, uh, and you're identifying prospects and then you start working through the appraisal and the early maturation and you're trying to right and you're making decisions about like ever, like as the clock ticks, the number of like dollar signs involved that are at risk grows, you know, I don't know if it's exponentially, but it's like, it's a lot. Oh a lot. yeah. It's a lot of growth. Sure. Right. And if you get, and the further you get along, if you find out that you made the wrong decision and you, you chose to develop this asset instead of that one, or you chose a different concept or you chose like whatever, like it's, I don't think people, it's hard for people and the complexities involved and, and we get criticized about silos all the time, right? Silos and you get, and you're dealing with data and all that. Um, um, I always say, you know, anytime you talk about like trying to do things, you know, like especially technology, you're always going to end up talking about data silos and culture. Those three are always going to be, you always end up talking about them. And, I don't think people, though, get the even sometimes people in the industry don't appreciate the level of complexity and the amount of risk that's present, like at every stage of the oh, game. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's it's hard to really. And that's why we look like we're going slowly and making a long time to take decisions. And I'll, things like I'll that. use a to, to your point about the complexity. I'll, I, I frequently will say, in fact, the, I'd say it's a fairly comfortable fact. That when you talk about large industrial complexes, now we're talking refineries, chemical plants, mining operation, really intricate power generation facilities. Literally, you are talking about the most complex systems on earth. Really. Yeah. And and people say, Ryan, give me give me that were built fifty years ago, by the way. Many of them, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And people say, Well, Ryan, give me some give me some data on that. Like, how how do you define that? I said, Well, let me take a, a. 300,000 barrel a day, which is a big, 300,000 barrel a day refinery in the United States. When you think about the numbers of different assets that are all required, number of different pieces of equipment required for that refinery to run at full throttle mm-hmm. from piece, sections of pipe to heat exchangers to pumps to compressors to control loops to you know, computer automated systems, uh, pressure yeah. vessels, reactors. Literally, you're talking about 75,000 different machines that all have to be doing their job correctly in interrelated to the other one for all this thing to work right. Now, if someone says, wow, that does sound like a pretty big, complex machine, I'm surprised, but they say, but still though, we've been doing this a long time, right? Like, how do we not have this figured out? You yeah. know, interestingly enough, we watched our society on the whole struggle mightily recently with a complex system when you talk about COVID, right? Oh, right, right. Co- COVID was a, a really interesting sociological example of a complex system that I believe, if you want to get really bold, in 10 years, people will look back and say, wow, we really screwed that up. Like, yeah. we could not have manhandled that situation anywhere. People worse. might be saying that already, yeah. Oh, a lot of people are, but I think yeah. the general consensus it will be, be like, wow, wait, we did what now? We couldn't even have done though, it, yeah. Even though only a small fraction of the population was at any sort of elevated risk, we shut down the entire economy, right. really put ourselves almost into bankruptcy, drove inflation to record levels, got to the point we can't even get basic goods and services. Why? But if we can just save one life. 
Uh, exactly. And yeah. in fact, I'll even say that the data I think in, in over long haul is going to say not only did we not save one life, that we co- net net we cost lives. But that that is an idea of a, of a system. We're going to have part two come back. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about that. I don't know how we'll work it into oil and gas tech, but that will be fantastic. Well, that, so, that, yeah. that does work because the how we model complex systems, believe it or not. Yeah, in yeah. fact, my right. book, Crucial Decisions, talks about COVID, baseball, refineries, the the body system and how we process sugar all of these are, the human body is a very complex system and so how we model complex systems in a lot of areas believe it or not interrelates yeah yeah, yeah. I, i'm glad you brought up the refinery bit because i was i was talking mainly about uh upstream because that's just what was on my mind at the moment but but um yeah uh the other thing with the refine so you have you have this complexity that you just articulated very well um and then the risk there, uh, again, not only the safety risks, um, in terms of thinking about what the kinds of decisions that a company has to make and what they and the problems that they have to solve. Like, what is downtime cost in a refinery, right? If you're down for a short period, it's seven digits, right? Oh yeah. Uh, um, um, it depends, obviously, on the size of the refinery. Right. Refineries in the United States range from the smallest ones that run regularly are twenty thousand barrels a day. The biggest ones are six hundred thousand barrels a day. Right. So your biggest refineries, if they are down, probably cost you on the order of they're they are losing or their net operating loss is on the order of ten to fifteen million dollars a day. A day to be down. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, massive um, dollars. And so. <laughs> I, this is good because I think, um, and we were and we were talking about this earlier. Where our so so Paige Donnell, who who you work with, we had her on another show, and we were talking about um, you know the industry has kind of an image problem, and part of it is because we don't educate people enough. Now people may not want to be educated, but but we could do more to educate people on exactly what are we dealing with here in this industry, right? Yeah. The kinds of things and that and I say yeah, I actually don't agree with that, but I'll. Uh, okay. I'll, yeah. That, now this is. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, I was throwing. You're gonna my have to pick those up <laughs> at some point. I will. Um, uh, anyway, but the, uh, the so there's this perception of there's another perception of uh, the industry is all about money and greed and everything else and let's face it, most of the world is. But the point is that uh, that's a lot of when you come in and say, why don't you just do X, Y, and Z over here? Um, or how come you don't modify your refinery to be like ten to fifteen million dollars a day? Right, is what's at risk. Yeah, and and forget about like the CEO's bonus or whatever. Uh, how are the shareholders going to feel about right? All yeah. of these things have like repercussions that impact real people. Yeah, um, and, and then we haven't even gone down the road of of the energy. Anyway, why why do you disagree with the? We need to well keep in mind it, part of my somewhat storied. Uh, story's the wrong word. And I want to get to like who you are because we skipped over that part. But yeah, yeah. well, and so as we do, we talk about well, I've not only run an oil and gas. Well, we are, I run a. We're not an oil and gas. Company. We're a technology company that develops systems to model complex systems, the most complex systems in the world. We do business with everybody from sawmills and pulp, pulp and paper mills to water yeah, mills right. to chemical plants. But oil and gas is probably the biggest sector that we serve. And um, however. In the middle of, of starting that company and then today being the CEO there today, Pinnacle, I did a six-year hiatus where I went and served as a Texas Railroad Commissioner. And so that gave me the most fascinating viewpoint on how oil and gas leaders, CEOs, entrepreneurs really, one, think about the market 
And then totally separate from all that, I also got this very unique opportunity to interact directly with the public. Because when you're a, a statewide elected official, my boss is a voter. Yeah, yeah. So when Supposedly, we say that's the idea. So we say, Ryan, you know, there's this opportunity to educate the public more. I, the reason, Michael, I disagree is because they're not willing to be educated. Well, I, I did say that. I put that caveat. On it. Okay, I did. But but but, but I don't. Right. But yeah. even if we even if you said, well, Ryan, what if we were willing to invest all this money and and force into public education? Both my parents were teachers. I actually don't think that's the best way yeah. for us to try to solve the industry's perception problem. You said it there. You sort of dropped it as a, you know, well, everyone thinks it's all about greed and money. So let's face it, most businesses are. And and I don't actually think most businesses are. But well, the I didn't reason, say business. I just said most of the world is. Most of the world is. So, yeah. yeah. And, it's and kind of what drives the world in a lot of unfortunate. cases. Right? I will actually say this. I get exactly why you're saying that. And there are times I'll say the same thing. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to split hairs on this because my philosophical side is going to come out. Okay. The world really isn't driven Are we going by back money. to Plato's Republic? Hey, hey, let's do it. <laughs> the world isn't driven by, by money. But the world is driven by the idea of value. Uh-huh. In other words, let's let's take it not even a company or a or a, a country. Let's take an individual. At the end of the day, individuals do spend way too much time talking about how much money they want to make, how much money they got in the bank. Sure. At the end of the day, no one really wants a little green picture of a dead president. What they want is the ability to drive a nice car, take yeah. nice vacations with their family, put their kids through college, pay for their daughter's wedding. They want those things. But we have over time because of so much narrative around money. People equate the two, that security and and enjoyment of life are one and the same as having a lot of money. Now, why we, of course, I'll say, well, duh, Ryan, that. Well, that, but, so that, so there's a, a, a good little uh, kind of proof point there, uh, which is, I mean, this is what, what was this guy's, the guy's name, Reagan's economist that, like, that, that solved the last inflation problem, who um, said, who said, um, and he kind of like did away with all the the Keynesian, and, but his, his the 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 thing that people learned was that when the government pumps cash into people's pockets, people don't actually um, they don't actually care about the cash, right? They'll they'll, they'll they want to buy stuff with it. Yeah, they'll blow right? through it faster right. than they would if you didn't do it. Right? right. And if there's not any money to be made uh, with investments, if you can't, right? So at that time, capital gains tax was really high and people didn't, there was no point in investing in the market. So they don't just keep the cash, like they buy gold or they buy property, they buy real estate, they buy- Well, that's a small fraction, but yeah, most right. people just spend it on regular goods. They just buy more of them. Right, exactly. But even the, but even the people who are like smart about money, uh, so, so to your point, is they don't want the picture of the right. with the pre- it's 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 what that gets you. What's it right? And, and so people think one well, is the same. Back to the issue with oil and gas. If you said Ryan, if you were the king of U.S. oil and gas and you got to do whatever you wanted to do, what would you do? How would you how would you solve this problem? And let's first of all let's understand what the problem really is. The problem isn't that the CEO of Exxon or Chevron or of Pinnacle isn't making enough money or that their companies can't do business because we can. The problem is that if we continue on the road we're on right now, the U.S. is going to run into bigger and bigger economic challenges if the price of our energy puts our industries in the U.S. at a competitive disadvantage to other industries. Yeah. Right? So when you think about manufacturing, I'm talking automotive, transportation, development of healthcare, development of technology. The other day, if the cost of a BTU of energy in the United States 
is a disadvantage versus other countries, then those countries, the, then people, businesses will move and we our, our economy will become disadvantaged. One of the biggest drivers of the U.S. economic growth relative to the rest of the world in the last 20 years was actually not all the technology things we're doing and all the advanced education, those have been good, but it has been the fact that the U.S. enjoys the most affordable, most reliable energy on the planet, right. period. So we're going to, if we continue on the road right now, we will give that up. And that is the problem that we have to solve. And, it, and that is not, once again, that's not a problem for the CEO of Exxon. That dude makes oil and gas all over the world. That guy's going to make money whether or not he produces oil in Nigeria or partners with a Russian company or makes it in Canada or makes it in the United States. And by the way, the oil and the natural gas that he produces isn't the thing that actually ends up in your gas tank, right? Right, that's right. There's a lot. He's he's like feeding the the supply line at the the front, but there's a whole bunch of other people that have to solve other problems that come after that, right? So if you ask me, Ryan, what would you do to solve the problem? I would... I would, first of all, you all this stuff, you talked about everyone being so risk averse and hyper planning. I would tell all these executives, all these leaders at all these oil and gas companies, stop doing that. I want you to go on, I want you to go on the microphones. I want you to be willing to do interview. I want you to be candid. The only thing I want to require you to do is I want you to make sure that your mental model, whether you're the CEO of a big company, technology leader, small company CEO, I want to require you that your mental model is based on the U.S. kicking ass. Because we will yeah. kick ass if our energy does well. Right. And if every every sort of story that you tell, every anecdote you give, if every data point that you reference is centered on the U.S. kicking ass, then, man, people in the, across the country, they're going to like that. Yeah, that runs a little counter to the uh, prevailing uh, popular way of thinking, though. It does. Right? Oh, yeah. uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's not, yeah. But um, I will tell you this. As a, as a railroad, I was a Republican politician. Right. Right. And it was not uncommon for me to go talk to a very wide spectrum of people. I'd go to Chamber of Commerce groups sure, where sure, half yeah. were Democrats, half Republicans. I'd go to talk to college campuses where 80% were Democrats. And by and large, if I said, look, my objective as a railroad commissioner is for the state of Texas to thrive. That's it. My objective is not to produce more oil. My objective is the state of Texas to thrive. And no one was like, well, that's just a bunch of hooey. I don't want to talk about that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. So when I then talked about, so why do, I, why do I look and say that part of my job then as a railroad commissioner is to make the development of oil and gas assets efficient is because that directly connects to a lot of ancillary yeah. thriving that the state of Texas will do. So, so people pause, got it like that. Let's pause here for a second. So for, those, for people who aren't from here, <laughs> why, why does the Texas Railroad Commissioner, why is he involved in oil and gas? Yeah, good question. Yeah. Because in um, 1915, the state legislature figured, oh my gosh, we're producing a lot of this oil stuff and someone's got to figure out how to regulate it. Well, let's let the train guys do it because they're moving a lot of that product. So back 100 years ago, the Railroad Commission took responsibility for oil and gas. Over the next 100 years, all of the responsibilities for train stuff went away, <laughs> literally. So today, Ryan, are you saying that the Railroad Commission does exactly zero with trains? Yes, nothing. Right. It's entirely energy regulation. Yeah. 80, 90% of their and How come, how come nobody's ever changed the name? Oh, dude, now you're going to get me on a real soapbox. Yeah. I, was, I was a big proponent of changing the name. But candidly, it is tradition. Tradition. There's enough people have been around a long time, and I'm okay with that. I like the name. I'm okay. Like I'm not. I feel. I feel. <laughs> no. I'm. I'm okay with the notion of, of let's hang on to some traditions. Like there's some value in tradition. In general, yes. So. In this one, I don't like it because 98 percent of the population of Texas doesn't know it. Yeah. And the railroad commission name is the first reason why. But we already established it. that they don't want to be educated anyway. So. There you go. There <laughs> so you go. It, but so they do want transparency. They, they do want. So, yeah. So a mis act. What a lot of people perceive is that it is like an intentional misdirection. 
So that's why it's a problem. Ah, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, a lot okay. of voters think that. They, okay. It's an intentional like, it's a, like a trick. Like, yeah, like a bait and switch. Yeah. yeah, like a trick. Right, right. Okay, so... You're, uh, so we've covered some of your story. Uh, I know, you, so you're not from uh, Dallas originally, right? Dallas area? Grew up in Irving. Irving, right, yep. right, right. Parents, both teachers there. Both teachers. and uh, But they but they sent you, but they didn't send you to, you, you went to, uh, uh, did you go like all boys prep school or something? Right? I did, yeah. That? Well, that yeah. Was my, that's where my mom taught school. Okay. So okay. she taught at Cistercian, which is a very right, small right, all boys right. prep school. I'm telling you, brother, you have not learned discipline until you've hung around a bunch of 60, 70 year old Hungarian monks. Yeah. Those boys, no punishment. Yeah. And uh, so grew up there, then went to A&M, Texas A&M, got a mechanical engineering degree. And- right. Mechanical engineering. And, but, um, but I'm, and you mentioned this PhD, or I can't remember if it was before we started talking after, but you either, you, you got the PhD or you're working I'm on the PhD? We're right now. I'm nominally in, halfway through. In, in data science. Yeah. And spe- specifically data science engineering. So when you look around the country, there's a whole lot of data stuff going on. And I'm going to tell you, Michael. I, and I, I'm gonna. Some of your listeners and some of your people you do work with will be annoyed when I say this. I will say 80 percent of the people that say, "Oh, our company does data stuff," they're just they they're not really. They're yeah. they're doing some presentation stuff, some nice visualization. And there's a lot of schools today that have data science masters, data science analytics. There are only at the time when I signed up for to go to to get my PhD, there were only two schools that actually had data science programs in their departments of engineering, where it was a real analytical man. You're you're gonna you're gonna get into the real like nuts and bolts of complex data science. And, so, um, so maybe the, yeah. So we didn't even really. Uh, I don't know if anybody was using the term, but it wasn't broadly heard data science until I'm going to say just in the last few years. I feel like I, I want to say Definitely. two. I want to say two or three years, but every time I say that, like every time I say that was about two years ago, my wife goes, <laughs> "Yeah." Well, in and, fact, I will say, you, uh, no, you're exactly right. It, it really, but it's relatively new, right? Absolutely. So, but but like most things, the concept probably isn't new. It's just the name that's new. Yeah. So what really? And and we throw the word data science around all the time, and most of the, most of the time we think about. Um, like like people like looking at spreadsheets and stuff yep. and trying. But what is what, what's the real? What is data science? What is it really? What, statistics. What, yeah. Before but statistics yeah. sounded too nerdy, so we said, "Ooh, data science. That'll be cool." Data science. Okay. I will say now the the my data science colleagues out there will get all animated when I say that. Like Ryan, that's not true. If you take the the real hardcore statistics. In fact, I'll just say my data science program. Hardcore statistics. And, and analytics. Why are those different, Ryan? Run some some hundred year old statistical algorithms on big complex data sets, then analyze the the results of those algorithms to fig- figure out what insights that gives you. And and then when you take both of those things, so the statistical analysis and the analysis of those results, and you do it with some very hyper, very sophisticated computer algorithms that we haven't had for a long time in programs like Python or R or um, whatever the other one is that we use. That, the combination of those three things is really what data science is. In fact, I'll tell you a quick anecdote. I'm in, um, I'm in one of my, my PhD classes last year and the professor there is teaching us how to do something called signal analysis. We're pulling in all this sure. data, and we do it. We use a, a, a process called principal component analysis. I'd never done it before, and, I, and I, it's unbelievably powerful. It's a way to sort of take a very complex data set and form and, and describe sort of the shape of that data, right. then use that shape to draw some very quick conclusions. I'm like, this is unbelievable. So it's, it's what we do at Seismic, right? It's, it's, it's very it similar, right? I don't yeah. know if it's. I don't know if they actually use principal component analysis specifically, but anyway, but it's, this, but it's this, signal data and it has a shape. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This mathematics that that 
that creates, that tells you the shape of this data that then you can use for organization of data. I'm like, this is incredibly powerful. I'm so excited to learn this. And the professor says, kind of smiles, her name's Jamie. Jamie says, Ryan, you know when, when we invented this? I'm like, oh gosh, when? 100 years ago. It's yeah. that old. So, I'm, <laughs> but now we've got computer logic, P- Python, I can write a script in like literally 30 seconds to do it. That's what's new. But the logic behind it is is, ancient, it, the, so. is yeah 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 it, a lot of a lot of what we're doing with modern computing isn't conceptually new. It's that it's that because we have the computing power now, we can now do things that's right that we couldn't do before. That's right. Unless you wanted to wait lifetimes for things to complete. So okay, um, I wanted to back you up on something there. Oh, Paul Betancourt. That's what I was trying to think of. Before. Okay, I couldn't think. I couldn't remember saying we we're trying to get Paul Betancourt. Okay, um, he actually was here at the arc. So every uh, so so I think I think people who are listening now know that the studio is here at the Arc Specialties facility, and they have a first Friday lunch events. Okay, uh, every every month, and uh, somebody and there's a it's just for whoever wants to show up, and. Uh, and uh, and there's always a speaker from somewhere. Um, I don't know. Maybe I should introduce you. You would be great. I'll introduce you to Dan, and okay. you can speak at the first Friday. It, it's just a bunch of people from the industry, like like a uh, different part of the industry. Anyway, our listeners don't care about that. Um, <laughs> so uh, edit um, that out and post. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, I, we don't take anything out. Um, where was I going with this? Okay, b- back to you. Oh, we talked about te- we talked about railroad commission. You did that for so you started you started Pinnacle. Yep. Uh, yeah, with all this data science. Oh, I, and I also wanted to get to um, a lot of times people don't. If in the interest of the tech show, there's a lot of talk about data science sometimes without a lot of talk for about like what you actually do with it. And yeah. How did it change the business? So I'd like to hear about that. Like, so some of the people that you're actually working with. Sure. What's happening there? Um, but, uh, um, uh, railroad commission, you started pinnacle before that yep. and, uh, then you went up, you took a six year break and then you, you so, so how long have you been back? Like just regular with, uh, with the company started then? back at pinnacle in, uh, basically middle of 2020. 2020. So I, I was in my lame duck period at the end of my term right. at the railroad commission. And so started coming back to pinnacle towards the end of that term, became officially the CEO at Pinnacle, um, I guess it would have been January of 2021 when my officially my term ended, but I was transitioning the back half of 2020. I got you, I got you. So, so, you, so you, you turned over the reins to somebody else yeah. while... Uh, well, turned over the reins, I was, uh, I lost re-election in the Republican primary. I wasn't going to bring that up, but... Oh, no, you know, no, it's yeah, okay. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, we'll just pour a little salt in that one. Yeah. Uh, we'll, uh, <laughs> but no, I lost re-election March of 2020, and so after that, I knew I was going to be not there. The next guy was going to be coming in, so that's why I said, sorry, kind of making that transition still serve though as a commissioner all the way through the end of 2020 right 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 um, right that must have been an interesting way to finish out your term to get unelected no 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 2020 oh covid 20 yeah yeah well as a matter of fact um it's funny you're exactly right it was very interesting in fact there was a um i don't know if you remember this but well i'm sure you remember the price of oil dropping to negative 37 dollars a barrel yeah so we had this really historic event of global oil demand dropping. Yeah, you know, right now oil demand is right around 100 million barrels a day. We think at the lowest point in COVID, it probably actually got as low as maybe there's probably days where we were only as a as a nation using as a world using half that much. Mm-hmm. Probably average lowest month was probably somewhere in the in the mid to high 60s. Right. And so what do you do with all the oil that's being produced? Well, one of the questions that came up is man, the railroad commission has the not only ability but has the requirement this is literally in the in Texas law that the railroad commission is supposed to prorate 
mandate the level of oil that Texas producers can produce to match demand. So yeah. it's, we're supposed to do it. So a big debate came up. Man, we, if, shouldn't we do this now? And I said, regardless of my opinion on market forces and everything else, it doesn't matter. The law says we're supposed to do this. And um, and it became literally global news. Like I was on the phone right. with yeah, the yeah. U.S. Energy Secretary, the Russian oil minister, the deputy uh, deputy oil minister at, in, in Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Arabia, the the. Oh, I can't remember what they call him, the head of the of OPEC. I mean, I was talking to all these guys. And there was actually an article that that was on the front page or whatever it is on Bloomberg that said, said the, the name of the article was, because this was after I lost re-election, said the, the title article was How a Lame Duck Railroad Commissioner Became the Face of Texas Oil. <laughs> like, yep, that pretty much sums up my whole time in oil business, in, in public office right <laughs> Yeah, there. yeah, I... Um how headlines get written is one of my like biggest pet peeves yeah. in, uh, in in the world. That that and uh, certain things that people do when they're driving. But um, <laughs> but I'm always you know you, you look at how headlines are written, and then you look at like what the story really is, and it's um, yeah it's it, it, it's quite annoying. So all right, um, uh, where are we? Okay, so. Anything else interesting? COVID, uh, Rural Commission, oil. So what? What, what happens? What did you do? What did we do? We, I, did, I, we did not prorate. I, I remember this. Yeah. I remember this whole debate, but debate I, I don't remember what the, actually happened. One of probably the most visible times for the Railroad Commission in its in in any sort of recent history. Uh, but yeah. we ended up not prorating. And I will say to this day that I think I'll say two things. I I said publicly my biggest fear is not the price of oil going down right now. Like at the end of the day, that's market forces. Here's what my fear is. And once again, you go back and look at this. It was quoted in the news. I said, man, I'm afraid that if this plays out, the instability in the oil business today, and this was in April, May of 2020, this instability, while the government is subsidizing almost every other industry, this instability will will serve as a, a, as a, a real primary fear for future investors in oil. And so what will happen mm-hmm. is you have this big market crash. Right. A lot of oil and gas infrastructure will go away. Service companies will die. Employees will leave, whatever. There won't be any government support. Future investment investment won't come in. And my big concern, I said back then on the record, you can look it up, was in the middle of us trying to recover from COVID, oil and gas prices will go to record highs and it it will actually squash our economic growth. In other words, two years ago, I predicted that what's happening right now is what's going to happen. Yeah. Well... You got that one right. I did. Yeah. I don't get them all right. I don't take credit for them. Well, yeah. And now what we see, and to your point about discouraging investment, Mm -hmm. um, we'll get back to the refinery thing. Uh, You know, it's not just the price of crude that determines what the prices of the stuff you put in your gas tank. Right. Right. In fact, right now, that's the... The biggest one is refining market. Is the refining market, right, exactly. And uh, Mike Worth was just uh, on something the other day talking about, hey, like nobody's going to build a refinery now. Yeah. It's $10 billion. The the ROI is a decade or more out. Yeah. And by the way, you're discouraging everybody, yeah. right, to I do thought Mike, By the way, this. for the, the Chevron CEOs who you're talking about, in case people don't know, but yeah, right. I thought he was incredibly articulate on that. It was that. really good. Yeah. It was really good. And it's like, well... So the self-inflicted pain just kind yeah. of continues, but 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 yeah. Well, we could get off on a whole thing about uh, and shutting things down prematurely. Well, what's interesting about this, though, Michael, that I find is so um, powerful. Th- 
you didn't have to be some sort of you know oracle to predict this. I mean, th- literally, you look back at global at oil and gas cycles on the globe for the last hundred years, and you could look at oh, here this price is going to tank. There's no regulation, no infrastructure, no support. Prices are actually going to skyrocket. There is a hundred percent chance. So much so that November of 2020, I will. Uh, how much did I believe in this prognostication? I was at this point just coming back as the CEO of Pinnacle. We had had three really good years, had a lot of corporate cash. November of 2020, we put half, fully one half of our corporate cash into oil and gas stocks. Because I thought, man, the rest of the world is thinking, oh, oil and gas is going away. No, it's not. And so what happened over the next three years, most of those stocks doubled or tripled in value. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it was, and like I said, it's it oh, well. a stock market genius. No, I just look yeah, at the basic data. Right, you can, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so coming back to that. Um, because I'm looking at the our fancy timer up there, and I'm also thinking about so I, I so so in the interest of transparency, a, as you know, I'm flying solo today. Our, our yeah. listeners know usually that I have help, yeah, and the help is so not the battery here. could be dying. The help there. is not here. I have no <laughs> idea what's going on right now. And actually, there's somebody else coming in here uh, soon, and I don't know if she's going to be able to get in the in the door. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> so, so uh, la la la. This bit about data science, you guys are focused on reliability. Mm-hmm. We, we talked earlier about, um, I think before we started rolling all this, um, about how this whole, reli- the whole reliability domain, when everybody's talking about uh, all the hoopla the last few years with digital this and that and modernizing and data science. Mm-hmm. and like, like, I don't hear and I've only been doing this show for every week for two years, but I don't hear the topic of reliability right. come up. I mean, the general philosophy of reliability, yes, like sure. making more reliable decisions or having a more reliable operation, but you're talking specifically about the reliability of of stuff, sure. right? And I don't hear that. I don't hear people talk about it too much. You don't. So is it, is it not really that important and you guys are just well, there's, there's off on a tangent sexy, or what? <laughs> right? Yeah. It's incredibly important and it's not very not, sexy. Not very sexy. On the flip side, digital transformation isn't that important and it's very sexy. Fair now, enough. Bold, yeah. bold statement, right? Ryan, are you saying people shouldn't be doing digital transformation? No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'll say is, and you're hearing executives at companies talk about this right now. They're saying things like, yeah, I've had, you know, our company is looking at these gigantic quote unquote digital transformation projects and they'll say things like, and we don't know what the ROI is. Right. We don't know what the payback is. Well, I will say that's or when where, it is. Or when it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really, what reliability has been going on for 150 years, it's not a new concept. What our company's doing specifically is saying, we don't do digital transformations. What we do is we apply very advanced data science, very advanced algorithms and models mm. that you might think of as digital transformation, but we do it with a very specific objective. What is it? We're going to make the mechanical assets in your facility run more reliably so that you get a whole lot more throughput and you don't waste money. So in other words, reliability is the value proposition you get from a really good digital transformation if you do it right. It's, or it's one of them. There's a lot of them you could get, but that's our that's what our company does. So how do you uh, uh, so how do you connect all of this uh, data science work? How does that end up making my mechanical assets more reliable? In the case of Pinnacle, we have built a, a software system, a model called Newton. Newton is arguably one of the most sophisticated modeling systems that any large industrial facility would use because it brings in all this data, but it doesn't just stick it. You'll hear people talk about data lakes and just data, you know, data data repositories. 
It takes all that data and then using more traditional first principles engineering analyzes the connectivity between all this data to predict how all these assets will behave in ways that other models can't because they're not more they're not complex enough. So there are correlations everywhere and exactly right. Yeah, yeah you yeah, think yeah. about why if I change the speed of this pump at this point in the plant, why does it change the corrosion right. rate in this pipe down here? Now some people say, Oh no, no, all we're gonna do is stick the stick all that data into a computer system and Azure will find those relationships. No, it won't. Because there's not enough patterns, there's not enough examples, right. uh, sample sets in industry to find those patterns with any sort of time period. The time horizon to do it is 10, 15, 20 years. We're trying to get these gains in like six months. Right. So using all of our traditional engineering approaches linked with these complex models, linked with all this data capture and algorithms, that's how we're getting the insights on assets that other other folks can't get. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that sounds perfect. Well, we think so, but I, of course, I'm smoking. I'm, I'm drinking a Kool Aid. So, how do, like, what does it come in blue? Does it come in yellow? What, like, what? How, right, yeah. how do I get one? Um, uh, but that, but that is a question that comes up a lot, which is uh, a lot of times people, all these great new innovations, um, they work great in the lab, right? Like, you you design mm -hmm. something, you can say, look, I put stuff in here, it comes out over there. Look at, but then. Uh, people struggle, uh, companies struggle sometimes to actually operationalize those things, right? Yeah. And a lot of times the companies that come up with these great innovations, um, especially if they're not really from either this industry or something like this, right? Yep. Uh, a lot of times they don't really they don't really think, they don't really have the experience to know, how do I take this and, and now operationalize it across all of my assets, right? In a, in a real refinery, in 10 real refineries right. or wherever, you know. Um, so how, like, how, how do... Well, one of the reasons do, are, people often ask, Ryan, if you guys are really leaning into this technology, into this innovation, why is your company so big? Why do you have 500 people? Because they're not software developers. It doesn't feel that big to me. Well, it doesn't if you're talking about Exxon. But to a technology company, that'd be a massive. Like oh, most yeah, fair enough. Yeah, but, yeah. but our technology arm, which is Pinnacle Technology, is a, is a fraction. It's 30 people. Yeah. The other 470... The actual software development part, right? Yeah, yeah the actual yeah, software yeah, development. Yeah. The, the big bulk of our company is doing that opera, operate, opera... Yeah. Operationalization. If I use that, that's a made up mm. word. We're the ones going in and making it work for customers. So, okay. for example, we're, we're, I mentioned we're in a lot of industries. We're about to go into a sawmill. And the sawmill says, I don't, I mean, your technology sounds cool. I don't, I don't know how to use that technology. I don't have the people to do the work here. If I did, fantastic. We'll bring the people. We'll bring the technology. Uh, okay. We'll bring the whole crew. We become more of a partner to make your facility more reliable. We don't have to know that much about a sawmill. You guys are the sawmill. Yeah. We know reliability, data, algorithms. We know these software programs. We have engineers like me who spent most of their time in the field. We also have data scientists and and software architects. Who, and so our team together can make this really work for you. So you're not so you're not necessarily selling like a. It's not just a product that says here's um, here's this piece of software. Right. Go, go use it. You're uh, you're just tackling the whole reliability problem with which um, is probably. I mean, that's probably how we should do everything, right? The, it seems like like more and more, right? People less and less people are buying a car because I just I want the car. In there. I just want to get from here to there. So I'll Uber. Yeah. Right? So you're hearing more that is that the future? Like I want to. Well, I want, I want the solution, not the equipment. Also, the whole, the whole, uh, the last in you know recent years, the advent of software as a service, everything as a service, um, uh, cloud, everything like it had this nice effect of it moved us away from these onerous 
on-premise installations that went on and, and it was it was forever before you could even start using whatever the thing was yep. right and and now all of a sudden people have been really clever about finding ways to deploy cloud-based web-based applications you know as you know or other things as a service right um the the, the financial models better right in some cases totally. and and all that but i do think that the downside, the, the negative aspect of this is um, I think there's less thinking in terms of like holistic thinking of how to approach a whole problem, yeah. right? So I need, an, I need a web application to help me with my reliability, not... I need to think about reliability as a whole discipline and how do I, how do, where does technology come in, but what else comes into that? Yeah, anyway, very well said. Is that, is that, yeah. Uh, well, in fact, it, that's not, that's, I couldn't have said it better myself. And that is actually one of our big, when you talk about reliability not being sexy, well, we've been doing reliability for a hundred years, right? Yeah, not the way we need to be doing it now. So a big part of our company's business, even though we don't, charge a lot for it it's, it's part of us is doing the education it's helping dude you can't just go out and buy this web app and stick some numbers in and run a calculation you got to think strategically like at this um, people can't see online i'm holding my hands up in this this high level the entire facility maybe even the entire region or this entire supply chain has to be reliable and that requires us to think in very different ways about all the different inputs and all the different possibilities for a complex system. Yeah, yeah. And, and once again, we're seeing that in so many different areas of our economy. I mean, you could argue a lot of the supply chain issues we're facing today is because people weren't thinking at that level right. two, three years ago. Yeah, and, yeah. oh, wow, if I stop doing this thing to make this chip in this facility, then somewhere down the road, no one will be able to buy a car. Well, that's, that's, that's part of the downside, right, of... Um I don't know, not just globalizing, but just scaling and distributing in general. I mm -hmm. saw I saw somebody said uh, somewhere on something I saw recently where, uh, you know, my great grandmother made it through the depression because her supply chain was local and she knew how to do stuff. Yeah. Right. Like 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 she. Yeah. She actually like knew how to do things yeah. and and knew how to solve problems and and so uh, as we. But as we get bigger and more, this is philosophical, right? But, well, but as everything, right, as everything get wants to get bigger and 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 scale, and uh, you know, uh, we talk about state state uh, politics, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there was a time when like the state was the main thing, not so much the country was the main thing, and as and as, as, as everything in our world gets like bigger and more blown out and more scaled and global and whatever, and global not meaning necessarily the earth global, but right. I know what you mean. Um, uh, it creates new problems that Absolutely. we didn't have when things were simpler, you know? Yeah. And, and, and now we're seeing, I think we're seeing some of the, some of the fallout of that, but, but oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, anyway, I don't know. That was just a, that's oh. for, that's for free. I just threw that in there. So, <laughs> well, there's a, uh, again, his name, Na Na Naeem Taleb, Ta uh, Ah, I think he wrote Black Swan. And I oh, saw yeah, a yeah, quote yeah. from him recently where he, he actually talks about the fact that all of this increased connectivity and globalization has made the world incredibly fragile. That's the, that's what I was getting at. The increased, yes, now you have fragility that you the didn't incredible have. Incredible fragility, yeah. yeah, yeah I love yeah, that yeah. anecdote about, yeah, yeah. yeah, your grandmother, man, the supply chain was local and she knew how to do stuff. Today, an air conditioner breaks in your house, you might literally have to move. <laughs> because you don't know how to fix the air conditioner and you can't get a new one for three months. Well, who can live in the Houston heat? Yeah. If you, you, I mean, you I've have... heard people having to do this. Yeah, in fact, yeah. I, I literally know somebody whose air conditioner went out in their house and they brought in seven window units 
to cool their house to stay, and the price was astro- at a rentum. Oh, I'm sure. Astronomical. I'm sure. And yeah. so you know, think about the cost of inflation and how this, I mean, just. It'd have been cheaper probably just to go on vacation. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you'd yeah. wonder, right? Yeah, it's yeah, crazy. Yeah. yeah. So fragility. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm just checking to make sure that. Uh, Your next guest is my not Kay- on my the door. My friend Kayla is not. Um, Oh, she's on her way. Okay, good. So, uh, so some of our listeners know Kayla from when we did the unscripted show together. That uh, I tried, I was trying to get you on, but you weren't available. Um, maybe that'll come back around. Um, we are. Let's see. Oh yeah, we're 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 well at the point where we should be wrapping up, or else okay. people may have already changed the channel. <laughs> so, uh, any uh, like parting thoughts? So people who so so you predicted some stuff a while ago. Um, people who are in the oil and gas industry right now, trying to make sense of stuff, wondering what's it going to be like. Like what what are what what are you, and you seem to be an optimist. So what? Well, well what, you caught that one. What should we uh, what, what should we be looking forward to as we kind of get past this this point that we're at right now? Yeah. Uh, so specifically for oil and gas folks, one thing I will say is that there is it's hard not to get not to feel pessimistic because there's so many negative headlines about oil and gas constantly. Right. Yeah. Uh, ESG issue shutting this thing down. Global pressure on this European Union that and everything. man. At the end of the day, the world uses 620 quadrillion BTUs of energy every year. 620 quadrillion. Quadrillion BTUs. Like, you didn't just say that like people say a bazillion. No, that's actually the real number. That's the number, right, yeah. And right now today, I I don't know the exact, but let's say two-thirds, fully two-thirds of that comes from hydrocarbons. Um, Of that, the biggest chunk today still is oil and almost the same size as natural gas. Coal is a shrinking chunk of those hydrocarbons. When you look at the rate that coal is shrinking... And you look at the rate that realistically, quote unquote, renewables can expand. Mm. And you look at the rate that that 620 quadrillion BTUs is growing. There is no scenario in which oil and gas goes away in my lifetime. In fact, I don't even see a realistic possibility for oil and gas global demand to go down in the next 20 years. So now, is it going to grow at the same pace it was growing, say, 10 years ago? Probably not. Because, once again, other energy sources are becoming part of the portfolio. But if I'm in the oil and gas business today, which, like I said, it's the biggest chunk of Pinnacle's customers, but we have a lot of other areas. But if you ask me, Ryan, well, are you going to stop doing work in oil and gas because it's going away? No, I'm leaning into it. Yeah. Because I think that there's not enough investment in it. Those who are still in it are going to increasingly increasingly be be producing a commodity that the world wants more of, and there's less people producing it, which is good for those who are in it. So I am absolutely an optimist about the oil and gas business, especially if you're talking about the next 20 or 30 years. So, yeah, um, yeah, my the data says we got we had a yeah. lot of positives in front of and you got a and you're a, a, a practical PhD, practically a phd in data I, so. the people who are phd's will take exception to that yeah. statement yeah you practically know when he's actually done his dissertation yeah, then then it, then, yeah, yeah i got you <laughs> all right good that's that's a, that's a good place to end and thanks for uh making time today Glad you did to mention you, you did slide in a plug for your book i did uh so what's it's the title Amazon, again crucial decisions crucial decisions and it talks about how to make decisions more objectively using data. And I give a lot of anecdotes in the book about COVID and oil and gas refineries, baseball. I feel like we could pass out a few copies of that book right now to to certain people and they probably could use it. Yes, they could. Yeah, yeah. All right. Ryan Sitton, thanks. And uh, I I think that maybe I'll, uh, I'll work with like my people to work with your people to try to get you well, back, again, back again, back <laughs> again okay. before too long. Cause there's probably 10 other things that we could have talked about that we haven't yet, but I appreciate you making time today. Well, glad to do it. Thanks for having me. All right. And that's, that's a wrap. 
Check us out next week for another entertaining and yet useful episode of Oil & Gas Tech Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGDN.com. (laughs) 